Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. How are you doing? It's David here. Welcome to the David McWilliams podcast, the podcast that every week tries to make economics a little bit less jargony, a wee bit more comprehensible and hopefully more relevant to all of our lives. Now this week, we're going to talk a little bit about where the UK and Ireland are right now. We're going to talk not about Brexit, even though we've talked about it the last couple of weeks. But what I want to talk to you about is cities, big cities, one of the biggest trends in economics and demography is this rapid move of people into big cities. And what this does is it drives up the price of property. It means that the average person can't find a place to live. It also means we've got to manage our cities in a much more intensive way. So we're going to look at the history of cities. We're going to look at cities that work. I'm going to talk about a city I've just come back from, Dubai. And we're going to look forward at a vision for what makes a great city in the 21st century. Before we begin, I want to just mention that this episode is brought to you thanks to our Patreon supporters. And to help support the content, and perhaps more importantly, to unlock exclusive comment and scenes and footage and episodes, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. So, as always, I am joined by my old mucker, John Davis. What is the crackhead? All good? All good as as normal. So how was Dubai? Well, Dubai is a very odd place. Yeah, it's I've never been. Very, well, I tell you, it's a funny place. I've been there about four or five times. That each time I get to like it a little bit more. And by that I mean I drop my baggage that, you know, this place is just loads of money, loads of shopping malls, an invented place, mm. not a real place, no culture. Yeah. It is all those things. But there's something else going on, which is a place kind of built out of nowhere, driven by the vision of one or two or three individuals. And there is something fantastical about it. Yeah. And I think as you travel around, you realize that maybe Dubai is a vision of the future, dystopian or not, that in the course of the next 50 years, lots of Dubais will emerge. And therefore, it's a very interesting place. I had a brilliant conversation on Friday night with an old friend of mine, Irish guy who's married to a Lebanese woman. I just went for dinner in their house. Loads of Lebanese, a couple of Iraqis, a couple of Syrians. That was really interesting because they're talking about 
what it is to be an Arab in the real world. And what they were saying right. to me about Dubai was quite cool. interesting because we dismiss it. But they said, as Arab people, Dubai is the one city in the Arab world that we can live freely as women. We can live openly. These are professional okay. women. Yeah. You know, these were people from Iraq, people from Syria. They can't live properly. People from Lebanon. They said, you know, Dubai has lots of downsides. But for us as modern Arabic people, particularly Arabic women, we can live here. We can function here. And I thought that was quite interesting. So my point is that Dubai is not all about shopping centers and, you know, lots of rich Gulf yeah. Arabs. There's loads of Arabic people living there, living a normal life. And Dubai for them is like their New York City. And think about it, moderate, open-minded, liberal people cannot do that in almost any other Arabic city. So it was interesting. That's fascinating. So come here to me. I know we're not doing Brexit, but I do want to just ask you, what is your take on the last week? Because it is a, we just, we'll just kind of dive into this very briefly. But what's your take a on shallow the dive. Well, 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 again, what's interesting is once you travel out of, as we're now calling them after the Good Friday Agreement, these islands, you realise nobody cares about Brexit, yeah, right? Nobody, yeah, yeah, nobody yeah. gives a damn. You know, you're not having conversations in Dubai about Brexit. But my takeaway for the whole last couple of weeks and now the next few weeks, I think, is that what has been weird about Brexit and Boris Johnson's behaviour in the last while is it's made the abnormal normal. And that is really worrying because when the politics of a country becomes abnormal and then over time you realise, well, you don't realise, you pretend that this is normal, then it changes the, the boundaries. So let's stand back and take a little bit of altitude and think, OK, Boris Johnson was elected by the majority of the members of the Conservative Party, number one. Mm. The Conservative Party have 150,000 members. Yeah. Most of those members are over 60, white, male. So not representative of the UK at all as a UK population. This is, this is a number that has dropped from... Three million. When the Conservative Party were in their pomp under Mrs Thatcher, they had three million members. It has collapsed. And where are they gone? Where are all the members People gone? are not into it. You know, the people are not into politics. So the, the rump of the Conservative Party is the most ideological narrow-minded rump you can get. So this is the tiny, tiny minority, and they are pro-Brexit. He uses this wafer-thin minority to follow the most radical policy for the majority, which is no-deal Brexit. Yeah. Very few people who voted for Brexit, and there's loads of them, obviously 17 million, they didn't vote for no deal. They voted for this idea that maybe we have a looser arrangement with the EU. So the abnormal, which is somebody who's practically unelected yeah. in a purely democratic sense, surrounds himself with the most radical people, is voted in by the most radical people, then expels... 40 of the least radical people yeah. from his party. And this party was supposed to be one nation, liberal, broad church, right wing. They're now narrow church, right wing. And in order to get his way, he's proroguing parliament. He is driving through legislation, trying to. But, and this is the interesting thing, democracy kind of works because yeah. he has now been caught by the bollocks. He is in office, but not in power. He's almost a zombie prime minister. Yeah. 
And that, I think, is the big takeaway, that the abnormal has been made normal in the UK on the right wing. No deal, which nobody really voted for, is now the policy. Farage, who has never been elected to Parliament, has been elected to the European Parliament, not yeah. to Parliament, yeah. is now driving Johnson. And Johnson has decided to narrow his options and take what was a middle-of-the-road right-wing party to an extreme right-wing party. Now, that would be grand and normal if the opposition party made hay under these circumstances. But what's happened is coincident with the Brexit-stroke-Johnson-stroke-Conservative party becoming more right-wing, the Labour Party have become more left-wing. Yeah, yeah. So you have Corbyn, who surrounds himself with old-style communists, whose idea of a good politician is Chavez and Maduro in Venezuela, yeah. who was, let's not forget, up the Ra, was a big supporter of the Ra when they were blowing people yeah, up, right? Yeah. So the British people now, John, have an election coming up. We're not too sure exactly when it's going to come, but yeah. it's coming, between the extreme right and the extreme left. And that is abnormal. So you have this strange situation where last week, Boris Johnson stood up on Monday and says, I don't want an election. By Wednesday, he was saying, I must have an election. Yeah. Corbyn has, for the last four months, said, I want an election, I want an election. Then when Johnson said, let's have an election, he said, oh, well, no, no. Yeah. Right? So everything's been turned on its head. And I think the great takeaway is Britain has become, in the words of de Gaulle, never a friend of Britain, De Gaulle went to Brazil in the early 1960s and being a typical snooty French lad, <laughs> came away and was asked in whatever French paper it was, let's say it's Le Monde, what did you think of Brazil? And he said, Brazil is not a serious country. Wow. Now, can you imagine that put down? I believe Britain is now not a serious country and they've got to recalibrate, reset themselves, figure out who they are, where they're going, and what they mean for themselves. And that's going to take a long, long time. I agree with you. And I think that, as you just said, there's only 150,000 members of the Conservative Party and they've purged all the kind of moderates. I, I can't see how the Conservative Party can exist. I don't see a future for it. Well, the thing about the Tories, they have managed to ride the wave of big epochal change. In a way, for example, the Liberal Party didn't. The Liberal Party were the party of the centre ground in the UK, Gladstone's party. And then, after Irish independence, after the First World War, they became an irrelevance. The Tories have always managed to be able to shimmy to the centre. It doesn't look as if they're going to do that now. So maybe you're right. Maybe the Tories will go the same way as the Whigs, the Liberals, and they will become a minority. Now, what comes to you? instead of that is an English Nationalist Party. And that's a new thing for the UK. And for us in Ireland, that's a, I think it's a dangerous thing. I think, as I've said before, when you're... Mosley, though, wasn't he? Uh... Mosley was a conservative, and then he, he created this League of British Fascists. So he actually left the Conservative Party and became a fascist. And, and he was gelded by the Conservatives. Yeah. If Britain, England, ends up being run by an English Nationalist Party, yeah. we will profit enormously in this country. Because I've always on, said, because I've always said is, when your neighbour goes mad, 
All you have to do is do nothing to look sane. Yeah. And sanity is a huge premium in a globalized world. So what I would say is that if they want to go off in that way, let them go. And let's just watch the fallout. Okay, that, that's probably much too much on Brexit because we're Brexit overkill at this stage. We were going to talk today about cities. Yeah. Now, I've been looking at a few stats and there's something crazy like every second two people move to a city. That's about a million people a week. And by 2050, in around 75% of the global population will be urbanized. As we can see here now in Dublin, for instance, it's hugely expensive to live in the city. You know, particularly for, you know, young professionals, young people just getting started, trying to even rent a place, let alone buy a place. How are we going to solve this urbanization problem? Well, I think this is so critical that basically the world is becoming urbanized, as you say, at a rate of which we've never seen before. And that means the management of cities. Yeah is of such a premium. Dublin and Cork and Galway are cities that are so badly managed that even a small increase in population has caused total chaos. So the interesting is when you go to somewhere like Dubai, you think, okay, wow, this is a city that was invented, was created, didn't yeah. exist. It was an old fishing village. It was a, the interesting thing, I, I, I'm going to see, I want to talk to you about Dubai in the context of what you're talking about, the big cities. Dubai is... Dubai. It's two words. One is Persian, one is Arabic. Du means two in Persian, and Bay is home or house in Arabic. So basically, for the Persians, Dubai was basically two houses. It was a little kip, right? And the Persians were the dominant force in the area. But the way in which the geography is, you what you basically have is a big bit sticking the Strait of Hormuz, you have a big yeah. bit sticking out. And Dubai was there. So it was always a trading post. Port was very, very small. And actually, if you go there, it was interesting. Old Dubai, and there is an old Dubai, based on a thing called... The two the, houses. The, the creek is basically <laughs> two houses. And maybe they think that it came from the two houses when the one side of the house of the creek was one house with Persians in it. And the other side of the creek was a house with Arabs in it. Oh, okay, right. And that might have been why it was called Dubai. Yeah. Many, many years ago. So it's quite a melting pot. So basically what you had is on one side facing Iran, you had Persians and Indians, Indian traders. And on the other side, you had Arab Bedouins. And that may have been the origin of Dubai. But the interesting thing about Dubai is, and we can talk about this in a while, is that Dubai was always a place where people traded little bits, John, not big bits. And then there was a craze for pearls in about to the early 19th century. And of course, you could dive for pearls in Dubai and it became a product. It was a big they, pearl place, is it? Yeah, and then they exported those pearls to India. Yeah. And the Indians wanted the pearls. And then it became an area that the Brits, of course, decided they wanted to control because the Brits wanted to control every aspect of navigational trade towards India. Because India was the jewel in the crown. So they took over Dubai and they took over Dubai. And of course, the Brits realized, well, we don't want to be sitting here in the sun. Let's figure out who are the most nasty tribe family in the area, yeah. which they did in Ireland, of course. And there was an outfit called the Maktoums, who were a family 
of Bedouins. And we said, those lads we will give this place to. And the Maktoums are now the people who still run it. They also run half the Irish horse racing industry as well. Oh, of course. So that's yeah. where it all comes yeah. from. Yeah, oh, of course they yeah. do, yeah. Sheikh Maktoum is the guy. And of course, like all great sheikhs and princes, he is the ancestor of the fellow who was the best head kicker of his time. <laughs> and that's what happened. But what interests me about Dubai was it is, in the context of what you were saying about the world urbanizing, yeah. Dubai was a nothing city, a nothing town, 1950s, 1960s. They found oil in the 1960s, but a small amount in comparison to what they'd found up the road in the UAE in Abu Dhabi. Yeah. Right? One leader, Sheikh Rashid, decided that he was going to change this country, not only on oil, but on a vision for the future. And he has done something both monumental, fantastic, ugly, abominable, terrible, depending on which way you look at it. But they've done it. So in a way, Dubai is the future. And by that I mean, this is what new cities are going to look like. And you're right, as you get all this massive urbanization, we're going to get new cities. And these new cities are going to dictate politics, geography, history, economics, our whole future. And that's why I find it fascinating. What was the driving force behind Rashid? It's a very relevant question. The driving force behind this guy was he went in the early 1960s to London and he realized what the West was and what the West could be. Yeah. He went to London, he realized people had toilets, people had education, the people were wealthy, the people had a sense of themselves. So he came back, and this is interesting, all the great visionary urban leaders have done the same thing. Mm. He came back and he said, okay, we are going to emulate these people, these Westerners, even though we are Arab and Muslim and they think we're backward. The first thing is he changed the language of Dubai. What do you mean? Dubai was an Arab-speaking country. Okay. City. It's not now. It's an English-speaking. So he said the language of the West is English. We're going to speak this. None of this Arabic stuff with each other. The official language is going to be but English. Isn't that a smart move in terms of trade? Well, this is the interesting thing. So what I want to talk to you about is look at Dubai and other great cities like Hong Kong, through the kaleidoscope of history, through the kaleidoscope of other great cities that were built by visionary leaders. Yeah. The two cities I want to talk to you about are St. Petersburg, Leningrad, Petrograd, whatever you want to call it, Yeah. St. Petersburg, and Shanghai. Okay. This is where we're on interesting territory. Okay, then. Tell us about St. Petersburg. Well, I am interested in cities that were invented by one person. Okay. It's a sort of a thing I'm interested in is what happens when somebody, we talked about your man Rashid in Dubai, when somebody decides, I'm going to create something new, when somebody goes somewhere, sees how the world works elsewhere, and comes back and creates something extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. And St. Petersburg, so if you go to St. Petersburg, I was there when it was Leningrad in the winter of 1990 stayed with friends of mine who were teaching me Russian and they lived in these tiny, tiny apartments right. with the granny, the granddad, the mum, the dad, <laughs> the kids and me and the cousin in there, all more or less sleeping on top of each other, 
extraordinary experience. But what struck me later on, I didn't know this, is that... Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. St. Petersburg was created by Peter the Great. It's a, Peter give, the, give us a year on that. Peter the Great was the great czar yeah. of the late 17th century from about 1680-odd okay, okay. up to about 1720. Yeah. So Peter the Great goes to Amsterdam, which was the richest city in the world, mm. in 1670, 1680, 1690, around this period, where the Dutch had the biggest navy in the world, the biggest merchant navy, and they'd created this thing called the East Asian Dutch Company. Yes. Okay? Yeah, yeah. And that company was pilfering all the spices of Asia and bringing them back. And the Dutch figured out, the Dutch were the first people to figure out, you don't have to produce stuff to make money. You just have to trade it. Clever people. That's what we should figure out in Ireland as well. Yeah. The Dutch figured out production is for sissies. Trade is where you make the money. You buy for a tenner, you sell for 15 quid. And the Dutch had created this unbelievable mercantile city, Amsterdam. And if you go down to Amsterdam, you realize the canals were not used for pretty dope smoking as they are now. <laughs> what they were used for was to get the merchant navy up to the side of the merchants' houses, and they would deposit all the goods onto the ships, out to the canals, straight out, right. and Bob's your uncle, yeah. around through South Africa and off to India. Yeah. So Peter the Great goes to Amsterdam disguised as a commoner gets a job as a Dutch labourer, yeah. okay? But he was obviously from Central Europe, Russia. They gave him some name. Undercover boss, this but sounds like. Yeah, it's industrial espionage. And he worked for a Brilliant. Dutch shipbuilder. And he watched the Dutch, and he figured out how they did everything, and he stayed there incredibly humble. How long was he there for? He was there for over three years. Right. And he came back personally, and he said, okay, I now know what the future is we're going to build a new Amsterdam in Russia. Now, Russia had no access to the sea. Think about it. Yeah. No navy, no access to the sea. He identified a piece of land where St. Petersburg is now, which was occupied by the Swedes 
on the Neva River. The Neva means mud. Right? So there's right. nothing there. Occupied by the Swedes. They were based, the Russians were based in Moscow. They attacked the Swedes. They beat them. They took the land. And Peter the Great said, we're going to put our new imperial capital here, based on Amsterdam. And amazingly, he didn't even give it a Russian name. He gave it Sint Saint Peter Spurk, a Dutch name. Wow. Right? Okay. It was a Dutch name. St. Petersburg yeah. is a Dutch name. And first thing he did was he said, we're going to speak French. We're not going to speak Russian. Why? Because French is the language of the Western aristocracy. And we are backward. A bit like Sheikh Rashid yeah. going to London said, we're going to speak English. Arabic is going to be our culture, but we're not going to play okay. that game. Yeah, yeah. We're going to speak French. We're going to create this extraordinary city. Of course, he could do this because he owned all the, the slaves, the serfs. Yeah. And in fact, Dubai has the same thing. It's got bonded labor of Pakistanis and Bangladeshis. We'll come back to that. But what Peter the Great did was he did two things. He came back to Moscow. He said, we're going to create this new city. He also came back to Moscow and he shaved the beards off all the noblemen of Russia. So in Russia, the old days, you'd wear a Cossack and you have a big beard yeah. and you were the boss. He said, no, I've been to Amsterdam. Men are clean shaven. They don't wear Cossacks. They wear shirt and shirts and jackets. That's what we're going to wear. So he changed the way people looked. He personally shaved the noblemen. What? He personally, personally shaved. shaved them. He must have been incredibly discontent he with was being a, Russian. A crazy. No, no. What he realized, and this is the beauty, is that all great cities are the confluence of cultures between East and West. Okay. That Russia was an Eastern power looked down on by the West. And if he was going to defeat the West and make the West subject to him, he had to ape the West first. Right, he had okay. to be more Western than the Westerners themselves. So he was going to create a city that was at a Dutch name. He was going to change into a French language. And he was going to totally change how Russian aristocracy looked. This is the beginning of an extraordinary story, the story of St. Petersburg. But tell us, what was the time frame in this then? How long so did all this process take? 1703, they begin to lay the first foundations. Right. By 1723, they have 40,000 people living there. Okay? Oh, wow. Okay. Right? By 1800, it is a monumental city because Catherine the Great came through then in the late part. And, and they she, and they built, they built the, the big winter palace and the whole shebang. They, got, they decided to get loads of Italian architects over. They built them. And a wow. bit like Dubai. You know the way the Dubai's <clears throat> people have this like, you know, these huge New York style buildings. They said, let's bring Europe here. Then, of course, Napoleon gets defeated in Borodino in 1815 by the Russians. The Russians then not only defeat the French, the power they were trying to ape, but 100 years later, in 1817, 1819, 100 years after the foundation of Leningrad, they are occupying Paris themselves, which was where the word bistro comes from. You know the bistro, the French bistro? Yeah, bistro on. means fast in Russian. So okay. Russian soldiers used to come to the French and say, fast fuckers, make us the food fast. <laughs> bistro, bistro, bistro. So you have this great story of a great city built by a fanatical person. Yeah. And then, of course, what you have is the natural tendency of a city to attract in foreigners. 
So loads and loads of Europeans, West Europeans, come to Russia, come to St. Petersburg, architects, engineers, poets, philosophers, literature. Yeah. They all come. Peter the Great and all the Romanovs wants to create a great city, but give it no democratic basis. Of course, when you create a great city, you create expectation on the part of people. Those people want representation. Yeah. And suddenly, St. Petersburg is not only the great Russian city, but it also becomes the great revolutionary city because the workers want representation. Right. And then the whole modernization of Russia plays out in the city and ultimately as well, the revolutionary side of Russia plays out. So all the great revolutionary moments in Russia from like 1890, 1905 was a massive big mm. a lockout. We think our lockout in Dublin was big. It was a pissy little lockout in comparison right. to what they had. And then, of course, you get the 1917 October Revolution. Yeah. Lenin comes from where? From Germany. The Germans finance Lenin to go in on the Finlandia train, the very famous one, because the Germans want to undermine the Tsar, who's fighting the First World War against them, and they know the communists, if they get into power, will sue for peace immediately. Yeah. So you have this extraordinary history of the great city. Now... The reason I find all this interesting today, John, and in our discussion is because if urbanization is the new vogue worldwide, then the history of great cities like St. Petersburg will be the history of all these cities. And you'll get greatness, you'll get riches, you'll get madness, and then gradually you will get the yearning on the part of the poor people to have representation. You know, the thing about St. Petersburg is that it couldn't only import architecture from the West. It imported ideas. Yeah. And what was the big idea they eventually imported? Marxism. Marxism written by Karl Marx in Trier, very West Germany. They import this via Lenin, but they were obviously involved in discussing and then Lenin does something amazing. He takes Marxism. The Russians believe in Marx's Leninism. He takes Marxism and he Russifies the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, they yeah. win the revolution. They then begin the process of creating a communist country. And then now, if you look at actually how communism fell, it also fell in Leningrad. So these great cities create their own fantastic thing. All the anti-communist demonstrations came when Gorbachev decided to introduce perestroika and glasnost, but where they actually came were was in Leningrad, subsequently St. Petersburg. So give us another great city that has a parallel with with St. Petersburg. Well, again, all these ideas are not my own. I've been reading a great book called The History of Future Cities by an American writer called Daniel Brooke. Really well worth having a read. Big, big tone, but gets you thinking. The other great city is Shanghai, another invented city. If you think about Shanghai, is at the mouth of the Yangtze River. Yeah. And the China Sea, probably the most strategic place in the world. Yeah. The Brits come in, get a concession. The Brits do something very strange. They say, okay, we're going to create a free trading port for Brits, French, Germans, and Americans, Europeans and Americans, but no Chinese. So the Chinese are actually banned from their own city. Really? Which is extraordinary. And the Chinese are used as almost slave labor in the first golden era of Shanghai, which is all about 
building. So, for example, if you go to Shanghai now, and I was there a couple of years ago, you got these French buildings, right. French colonial buildings. The French had their own little colony. The Brits had their own little colony. The Germans had their own little colony. All that sort of stuff. So this added to, as Caroline Kahn talked about, the 100 years of humiliation. This was the, this was the beginning of the 100 years of humiliation. And Chinese people were not allowed to go into the parks of Shanghai. That's outrageous. They were not allowed. And Shanghai was run by the Shanghai Municipal Company, which didn't allow Chinese people on the board. Right. Of this. And these are all Brits and French. All Brits, French, Dutch. Germans, Dutch, yeah. Europeans. It becomes the most amazing city in the world. People forget that Shanghai, before the First World War, the Chinese emperor is deposed. There's a nationalist movement in, in, in China. Shanghai, this huge trading city, becomes the most modern city in the world. When the rest of the world is going through the Great Depression, Shanghai has been built. If you go to Shanghai now, the architect on the Bund of Shanghai, this Art Deco, amazing architecture, all built by a society that were totally secure in the fact that this was going to be the number one megalopolis in the world. Mm. Coming back to our idea of cities, right? And of course, not unlike what happened to the Russians, Shanghai is the most glamorous, the most fashionista, biggest publishing area, most cosmopolitan. You didn't need a visa as a non-Chinese person to live there. Japanese lived there. Everybody lived there. But of course, like in Russia, once you create an unequal society, you create the momentum on the part of the average guy to grab a little bit of a stake. Communism comes in, Mao Zedong, many, many years later, what you find is that communism blends itself with anti-imperialism in Shanghai. Mm. Not in Europe, in Shanghai. Because the Chinese said, you know, we want our bloody place back. Yeah. And the ideology they were vying with was nationalism, which was pure Chinese, or this internationalism, which was communism. Communism begins to flourish in the upper middle class educated Chinese as a way of kicking out the Westerners who didn't allow them okay, full right. franchise. But I come back to the main idea. From the seeds of a success grew the resentment and the resentment overturned the regime. And then when Mao Zedong arrived in 1946, 1947, he took over Shanghai. And once, as he said, I killed the head of the dragon, which was the main city in China, yeah. I owned the place. But Shanghai was again an invented commercial city, exactly like Dubai is. The question I have in Dubai when I'm, driving around there is when I see all these thousands and thousands of indentured Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi workers. Are they going to go the same way as the Chinese workers? Are they going to go the same way as the Russian workers? Is a country's very or a city's period when it believes itself to be a leader is that one is just the most fragile because the lesson of all great cities is that you have to treat the average person well. They can't be built on huge wealth looking down on huge poverty. Yeah. And if you think then about all Western cities, we in the West, cities like Dublin, cities like London, whatever, we have to figure out a way of allowing the average guy live well. 
in a great city. And that brings us to Dublin. How do we do that then? How do we achieve so that? So there's no point in Dublin being a city, or not just Dublin, but also Toronto, San Francisco, being a city of the rich. Because the history of great cities is they get destroyed by inequality. Destroyed. Mm. Because people rise up and say, you know what, fuck yeah, of course it, I want a piece of this action. And that brings me to management of cities. That all great cities have great mayors and all great mayors have huge executive powers to build metros, to build social housing, to tax the rich, to build public parks, to build whatever it is that generation needs to live well. Yeah. We, in all our Western cities, have forgotten that. We've created cities for the rich. Now, Petersburg and Shanghai and Dubai are extreme versions of the same story. Yeah. That if you build, you go to somewhere like Toronto. But you can argue London is as well. But you can not argue. London is, yeah. full stop. If you build cities where you decide that the free market is the only way of distributing the wealth or the access to property or the housing of the city, you clearly advance the moment where people say, I've had enough. So therefore, cities need incredibly enlightened leaders, much more so than nation states, I believe, mm. because cities are a fulcrum of dissent and brilliance. Yeah. You know, if you go to a big city, what you've said to everybody, let's say the act of leaving your village is an act of transformation. You want to transform yourself. Yeah. That gives an effervescence. It gives an expectation. If the city doesn't deliver that, the city will sink either politically or economically. So when I look at all our great cities, look at, look at now at Amsterdam, London, Dublin, Barcelona, Toronto, San Francisco, even Wellington in New Zealand, all these places which are incredibly expensive now to live in, what they are doing is they are, by excluding the average guy and the poor guy, they are, it seems to me, beginning the process whereby the city becomes the fulcrum of revolution, the city becomes radical, and the city's very success, mm. like in St. Petersburg, becomes that explosive ingredient that brings the city down, which is why all our great cities around the world have got to figure out how do we manage population growth, how do we house people, and do we want to be here in 100 years' time or do we want to go the way of certain cities like Leningrad and Shanghai, which soared up until the 1930s and 40s and then disappeared off the face of the earth for 70 years, only to come back now? That's our choice. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Now, before we let you go, I want to give you a sneak preview of some premium content which you can access via Patreon. I know you said the peace process is a 1990s concept, but it's the one concept that the rest of the world has signed up to. What does that battleground in the centre right mean from our perceptions of the two-state solution of Palestine at the West Bank? What does it mean for that existential question? It means that your perception is obsolete and largely irrelevant. It means that in the Middle East, in in Eastern Europe, Russia, the Middle East, South Asia, East Asia, South America, everywhere outside of the West, 
the peace process doesn't exist. The Palestinian issue is relegated way, way down the list. And there are other issues that have come to dominate that. Now, you know, we can discuss at great length why this came about and who's responsible and, and where it leads to and is there anything positive about it. Is, you can talk about it from now to doomsday. It doesn't make any difference. If you enjoyed that, you can hear the full episode and much more by joining us on Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. See ya. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today... We're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.